You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 10th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster on today's show. We will therefore defer the vote schedule for tomorrow and not proceed to divide the House at this time. Brexit drama. British Prime Minister Theresa May delays a crucial parliamentary vote on the deal to take the UK out of the European Union. A nation in turmoil and a leader on the ropes. After weeks of violent street protests, can President Emmanuel Macron quell the anger engulfing France? My guests Ivor Geber and Oscar Gadiola Riviera will be discussing these and the day's other top stories, including elected on a mandate to transform Mexico into a more equal and less corrupt country. But can President Andres Manuel López Obrador deliver on that promise? And after 187 years of keeping women out, the Garrick, one of London's last surviving all-male clubs, is about to vote on letting them in. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ivor Gabriel, who's the professor of, professor of political journalism at the University of Sussex, and Oscar Gardiola Riviera, reader in law at Birkbeck University of London. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, in a startling U turn, the British Prime Minister Theresa May has postponed a crucial parliamentary vote on a deal to take Britain out of the European Union, despite previously insisting that Tuesday's vote would go ahead. Last-minute conference calls of her cabinet ministers confirmed what MPs have been telling her for some time, namely that there was little, if any, support for her withdrawal agreement, which deepens the relationship between Northern Ireland and the EU Customs Union. Having avoided a humiliating defeat in Parliament, the Prime Minister is now under even greater pressure to find a plan B that will satisfy MPs, the country and the European Union. Before we look at whether she can do that, gentlemen, this is one for both of you. It was pretty clear before the postponement that this deal will get shot down. So why didn't she opt for a delay a week ago? Why wait until the eve of the vote? Well, I, I think Mrs May, like Mr Micawber, um, was hoping something would turn up. She is a very obstinate woman, we gather, and she's been out campaigning and she came to believe her own um, inner voice, which was telling her, don't worry, Theresa. The same thing happened, of course, with the general election she called where she believed she was going to get a majority and lost. So I do think it comes down, I mean, one shouldn't, as, a, as, as somebody with a respect for history, say personality, but I do think this came down to her personality and she wouldn't listen to all those voices saying, you're going to lose and you're going to lose badly. I mean, indeed, this is a case of uh, uh, lack of judgment or excessive judgment, if you take into account uh, what many are saying, that this is just a manoeuvre to try and uh, hold on uh, to power for as long as possible. And it is quite concerning that uh, uh, our rulers are now seem to be more concerned about staying in, in power, come what may, 
that uh, about the the fate of the country. It is quite concerning to see how Brexit is uh, turning into its is beginning to confirm all its negatives, uh, which is to say that uh, uh, many people are beginning to uh, take leave as an article of fate, link up to uh, uh, anti-immigrant sentiment and so on and so forth. So let me finish by uh, uh, you know giving credit to those who uh, uh, at the local level of politics are doing what they can to protect uh, uh, citizens, EU, EU citizens and, and uh, migrants, you know, people uh, such as the brave councillor for uh, Swiss Cottage here in London, Nairobello Shanahan, who uh, are uh, doing what uh, most leaders should be doing, leading. Mm. Uh, but, but when you look at uh, the opposition to this deal, Mrs. Mrs May went around the country selling it before she had to go to Argentina for the G20 and there were MPs who supported the deal who were trying to sell it. And what came out was that regardless of where they went, for a lot of Conservative Party members, it was the Northern Ireland backstop. That was one of the big deal breakers. So can it be modified in any way? Well, her problem was that she managed to bring back a deal that um, was deeply unpopular with both those who were determined to leave and those who were determined to remain. Mm. A rare gift she had sure, for but, getting but it Sure, but Northern wrong. Ireland was certainly one of the key issues. It is. Why is it the key issue? Because throughout the referendum campaign, people didn't take on board the fact that if and when the UK leaves the European Union, it will still have a land border with the European Union, and not just any land border, but a land border that led to a 30-year, or, or was the focal point of a 30-year mm. war. Which was nicknamed the Troubles at the time. And when the Republicans, nationalists in Northern Ireland, wanted to rejoin or be part of the Republic of Ireland. And nobody, and it's to the shame of the Remain campaign, as they didn't point it out, what's going to happen? And as you're saying, Juliet, this is the nub of the problem. What ha- If they reinstate a land border, as you really ought to if they eat Britain is leaving the EU, then you put soldiers or anybody with a uniform or anybody representing the British state, they literally become a target for um, paramilitaries who still want a united Ireland. Which shows that those who came up with uh, uh, the idea of uh, Brexit were not thinking in the national interest. I mean, you would surely you would have noticed that uh, uh, the Friday agreement included uh, the question of the border as uh, uh, a red line for a what was effectively a peace process to endanger that is uh, incredibly responsible. But also the fact is that the Republic of Ireland has been a very good European. It was the first of the countries that hit economic problems after 2008 that behaved itself in monetary terms and got itself back in order. So the EU and Brussels is very committed to respecting and defending um, the Irish Republic. And if they, they have got an absolute veto on what's ever decided about the border and they're saying, up with it, we will not put and mm. they're not going to break. And, and let's look at the role of the EU because clearly there is some hope that perhaps the EU will, act, will perhaps go a little bit easy with the United Kingdom given the fragility of Mrs May's position. But could um, they open withdrawal agreement negotiations because they pretty much ruled that out? Well, the answer is, why would they? What, what motivation does the EU have to go softer and, and softer well, in, in I, relation I, to, you, the, well, to the UK? But I guess the answer to that is, look, if, if Mrs May falls then they're going to have to deal with somebody else see, and it's better to have that consistency. But, but no, I think there's a, a bigger point. The EU does not want Britain to fall off the cliff because although a no-deal Brexit would be 
very bad for the UK, it would be bad for the EU as well. Mm. So they have an interest. I think that Mrs May might just come back with a very slight change of wording which gives her sufficient wriggle room to claim that it's different. But I agree with you, there'll be no substantial changes, but it's not in their interest to simply say no. Not anyone change uh, uh, the current stalemate. And on the other hand, you could say that uh, the EU EU has been very clear, as uh, Yanis Varoufakis put it once, you do not negotiate with the EU, not really. They uh, give you uh, a certain option and, uh, you know, this is what uh, what we have, take it or leave it. There are 27 countries there to uh, negotiate with and so on and so forth. But as they keep closing doors, others open. So, for instance, the ruling by the uh, by the European uh, Court of Justice is interesting insofar as it allows uh, uh, one to say, well, the one mm. the one uh, uh, way out that has been there for, In other words, from the, the beginning is the there. UK can cancel Brexit, can. but it doesn't need the consent oh. of the other 27 EU member yeah, states. In theory, in a sane world, the government would grab that with both hands yeah. and say, phew, terrible mm. mistake, we can stay and we can keep all the concessions, because Britain probably has the best deal of any country. But I don't see a Conservative government going down that road. But nor do I see... So nor do I see a Labour government under Jeremy Corbyn yeah. because he well, has but, not... But, that, but that, that depends. I mean, everybody says that about, about uh, Corbyn's position, but actually one one could uh, also say, well, look, their position has been evolving and they are under uh, huge pressure to... Uh, uh, at the very least, uh, back up a second vote. And they have already said that if a general election doesn't happen or isn't possible, then uh, that becomes the actual possibility. There are there are risks with that option, and they are very mm. aware of that, which is why they haven't come uh, out in full support of it. OK, let's stay with the, with the idea of options, because one other option that was mooted many, many months ago, but which now appears to be gaining traction, is this idea of a people's vote projected as the only viable alternative to avoiding a hard Brexit with all of its potential negative consequences. Do you? Do either of you feel that uh, that ruling by the European Court of Justice has actually um, made that idea of a people's vote more viable? And could Mrs May be forced to accept it, even though she said no, that really does cross one of her legendary red lines? There's many legendary red lines of Mrs May that she's shown to mind, like she was saying up until a few hours ago, definitely the vote will go ahead, there's no question. It's 11 this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so we, don't, we take her red lines with a pinch of salt, just to mix my metaphors, something awfully. <laughs> but just to come back, I think it marginally increases it, it marginally increases it. I don't yet believe there's a majority in the House of Commons yet for a second vote, even though there's a very strong rational argument mm. for it. And the even problem, though it would depend on the wording mm. rather well, than it comes simply back, the I'm choice afraid, of do we, to the stay, Labour do we stay or do we leave? The Labour leadership, they, they, they've gave themselves... This was the moment for the Labour leadership to declare itself there's only one way out of this mess, a second vote, and they haven't done it. And I fear that Jeremy Corbyn and the people close to him believe basically in their heart of hearts the EU's a capitalist club and they're rather glad we're out of it. I have to disagree. This is not just an ideological decision. Uh, You know, every single poll keeps telling us that uh, uh, there is no certainty whatsoever about uh, a second referendum giving uh, a a different decision than the one... uh, uh, 
uh, we already have, uh, which of course uh, you know puts the fear of God into into everyone, every every politician. On the other hand, there is also this political tactic, which I might not agree with, but I understand. Well, let's try and force a general election. Uh, if that is not possible, then let's go for, for that vote. Uh, right, But right now, what really scares me is the possibility, uh, as many polls indicate, that if we go down to another vote, we would get exactly the same result mm. or something I, I, very, I, very in similar. In that case, that's fine. That's, well, there are three reasons. No, that wouldn't be fine. That's fine. It's definitive. <laughs> fine. Secondly, we can make sure that this time the referendum stays within the law because there's ample evidence now that the Leave campaign broke the law, so we would have a clean referendum. And thirdly, you know, we've got to resolve it one way or the yeah, other. What's Absolutely. a clean referendum? Which kind of, which kind of <laughs> well, vote that, and so on that, and so forth? That's a, that's a discussion for another time, but let's move on now because, uh, well, Theresa May may be consoled by this or not, but she isn't the only European leader with a lot on her plate to deal with. In France, President Emmanuel Macron is due to address a nation still reeling from four successive weekends of violent protests on the streets of Paris. Anti-government demonstrators from the Yellow Vest movement have vandalised property and fought running battles with the police in protest over Mr Macron's economic policies. Well, earlier today, the president held talks with trade unions and employers' organisations as the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, described the situation as a catastrophe for businesses and the economy. Now, we know that uh, Mr Macron has already suspended the fuel duty increases. These were seen to have triggered the initial violence. But, Oscar, why wasn't that enough? And is he likely to make other concessions in this nationwide address? What can we expect from him, if anything at all? Well, the problem is that politicians keep missing the point. As you uh, pointed out when you quoted the finance uh, uh, minister, they keep putting the economy before uh, people. And what is absolutely clear about this protest, horizontalist and leaderless though it may be, is that people are fed up with a system in which, uh, uh, you know, the, the rich keep getting all the good stuff. If all, you know, mm. even even better, yeah, uh, all the tax taxing, cuts, tax cuts and then, to benefit the and then on the pretext of, for instance, as it was the case in France, uh, uh, you know, d- uh, uh, facilitating a transition to a green economy, they are the ones who are called upon once more to pay. That cannot be. That cannot be. That cannot be allowed. If we want to win uh, the hearts and minds of uh, the people who are trapped uh, in this uh, system, which is clearly failing, uh, an ecological transition, an economic transition, can only be fair uh, uh, and just, and not leave anyone behind. I think uh, that uh, while, I, while I don't disagree with that analysis, I do think the Yellow Vest movement is part of the, the wider rise of populism we've seen across Europe, even coming back to the previous discussion, I won't go there in detail, about <laughs> Brexit, but the, the rise of the far right in Germany, um, in Italy, in fr- the vote for Le Pen. I do think that it's in this context and therefore it's a much broader question. OK, tax rises and so forth, but France is still an affluent country. And yet people feel poor. Mm. Um, that's Because not... they are getting poor. Well, relatively, but you cannot compare... <laughs> Poverty is always relative, of course. But, but the cry from the yellow vests is not unrelated to what's happening in the rest of Europe. And I think that's what we need to, do, to, mm. to look so at. So it's, it's the idea yeah. of, of people being left behind, but also the other phenomenon in France, I suppose, is this conflict, if you like, between the urban, the urbanites and the rural communities who feel that uh, they really are the ones being left behind. If you have industries located in these remote, out-of-the-way parts of the country, they shut down 
and it's the people who depended on these industries who are having to pick up the pieces in some yeah, way, shape or form. It's also the case, as we have seen in its own different version in the United States, that here both parties are beginning to converge. You know, those who live, uh, who feel correctly le- left behind in rural areas are beginning to converge with the students in, uh, in urban areas, with unions, with... Uh, so we can no longer just separate these. And we can... I, I really think we should stop uh, just, uh, you know, deploying words such as uh, uh, populism uh, in order to just dismiss uh, what is happening here. Of course, there is a pattern here, but the pattern is is uh, much more complicated. It has, to, or, or simpler, if, if you prefer, it has to do with the fact that uh, the... Uh, uh, economic model is leaving so mm. many people behind that of course these they're just beginning to they're they're fed up and that means uh, any politician uh, will try to hijack uh, uh, this crisis right. if we allow the far right to to hijack it that's our fault and it is the fault of uh, centrist republican politicians who keep blaming the people rather than trying to listen to right. them right so a new economic model is required effectively that's what you're Abs- saying absolutely but, but, but look let, let's broaden things out a bit because the protests, they are, they have been driven by this, this rage against um, Macron's economic policy and other factors as well. But is there evidence that it's also giving voice to latent Euroscepticism, that it's not just government policy that's responsible, it's the, it's the wider... EU community. France is a key player in that. So it's Europe which is which is helping to cause some of this anger well, as well. I'd, I'd say it's even wider. It's globalisation. Um, these force, mm. forces mm. are bearing down on people. Sure. In the old days, so to speak, um, a, a national government could pull certain levers and if it wanted to, it could change economic circumstances. I mean, to some extent, Macron was responding by his tax cuts for the rich. He was responding to broader economic pressures coming not just from the EU, but globalised economic pressures. And I think adjusting to a globalised world, particularly for the affluent half, which is used to having it relatively easily, is painful. And particularly as countries like China and India compete not just in terms of, quote, cheap labour, but they are now very powerful economic players in their own right. Mm. So it's a, so it's a re- realignment of, of the world is, order, is, and I don't think um, I'm going to disagree with with Oscar here. I, th- I don't think the system is going to change the system. The system is changing. It's how we adjust. It's a painful adjustment. But, 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 to but it. of course, the, the system is changing. But we must make sure that it uh, doesn't go in uh, a, a, a cat- an even more catastrophic political direction, which it could. It mm. easily could. Which is the point of your question. Sure. Of course, there there can be this kind of uh, crisis gives voices to uh, the far right and so on and so forth. But, but let, let me deepen it but by sticking with Europe because yes, you, you have this, this Euroscepticism which, is, which has been in France, it's bubbling to the surface but it's the implications for Europe and I'm looking specifically <laughs> at uh, the position of Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel because you had two key players holding Europe together and certainly when Macron was elected he was seen as the great saviour. Merkel is going he's having to carry the mantle by himself can he do this with any credibility and success given that his own position is looking very fragile if he doesn't get this right? I don't think he can do it. I mean, I think it's becoming clear that he cannot do it. But actually, many have already warned that it would it would be totally impossible 
totally difficult, if not impossible, to do so given the context. Uh, to quote uh, uh, Lorenzo Marci- Marsili and Niccolo Milanese, <laughs> what we need to do is to uh, help Europe save uh, uh, itself from itself. Uh, and there is a terrible problem here, as you pointed out, as my colleague just pointed out. It is the case that we have seen how, uh, you know, power is uh, subtracted from politics more and more and uh, passed passed over to uh, uh, the, the big economic players. Well, we need to use our political tools and democracy is supposed to be the one uh, to make sure uh, that doesn't mean uh, the many are left behind. Mm. And, and perhaps it, it, is it necessarily a bad thing, Ivor, given uh, the, the, given this this idea of the realignment, if, if some of that power in Europe is perhaps shifted to to other other members of this club, rather than having to defer to France and Germany, that maybe it needs to be a bit more well distributed? Well, in theory, we often talk about the democratic deficit in Europe, But in practice, real power comes from not from the barrel of a gun, but from from the economy. And France and Germany are overwhelmingly the strongest economies. I would not write off Macron yet. I was just looking at his, dare I say, poll ratings. They are not, at this time of presidency, as bad as either... Um, Hollande's was this or Sarkozy. Sure, but 66% of the French population uh, support the protests. Yeah, but in terms of Juliet's question about his position in Europe, he is not a dead duck yet. Mm. I still think that he and and nor is Angela Merkel who could stay on because the new leader of her party is a friend. If if she's allowed to, assuming she's not not undermined by circumstances at home. I don't think Mm. the Macron-Merkel axis, unfortunate term, (laughs) is yet dead. Right, so this still some life in it left. But look, you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Ivor Geber and Oscar Guardiola Riviera. Coming up next, Mexico's new president says he will make the country more equal and less corrupt. But can he deliver on that promise? What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Still with me are Ivor Geber and Oscar Guardiola Riviera. Now, 10 days after starting his new job as president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador has hit the ground running. He's opened a new investigation into the 2014 disappearance of 43 students, proposed offering amnesties to low-level criminals, pledged to set off the lavish presidential jet and has even cut his own salary along with those of other senior bureaucrats. Well, the president says he's simply delivering on a promise to revolutionise the country's neoliberal economy, although that's cut zero ice with his critics who've been spooked by what they've described as a populist left-wing agenda. We cannot get away from that word populist or populism, can we, or variations of. But Oscar, how different is this new president if you compare him to his predecessor? Well, he's very different if compared with his predecessor. He's still part of uh, uh, the Mexican establishment, uh, which means, uh, uh, you know, this idea that he's a radical left-wing populist is uh, uh, completely an exaggeration. Uh, in some ways, I might wish he was more more radical, but he isn't. He has he comes from, from uh, uh, you know, a, a long uh, uh, political tradition and he himself has a long 
strong uh, political uh, life. He was the mayor of Mexico mm. City. He did very well as such. Many say he had already won. He has already won mm. a presidential election. Because he has contested it before as well. Yes, uh, and so he is promising to undo many of the things that uh, uh, both Pri and Pan, uh, uh, the uh, uh, right-wing parties, uh, did particularly equality. And as you pointed out, he has hit the, uh, you know, the road running, and that's, that's good. Uh, lashing his own salary is the kind of leadership by example that one would like to see more often. Uh, but here, he has already clashed with some of the other powers. The Supreme Court has just ruled that that kind of measure may be or is uh, unconstitutional, and we're going to see uh, a clash between the executive, uh, the legislative, and the judiciary in that respect. Uh, also, uh, he's not a sacrament Companioned as uh, uh, you know by other like-minded uh, leaders and parties in government uh, as uh, he would have been uh, had he been mm. allowed to uh, run uh, before. Let me let me bring in Ivor at this point as well because yes he has hit the ground running but also as well he may be muted or perhaps curbed in some of his ambition because of the neighbour next door. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Mr. Trump. Oh, him. No, <laughs> that fat neighbour next door yeah. over the border. That's, that, that, that's, the, that's the word we cannot avoid. I, I think he's got a very difficult job in his hands, let alone from the domestic point of view. He's first of all got this big bully next door, um, but he's also got the issue of the thousands, I don't know the precise number, of refugees who've now encamped in Mexico mm. trying to get in. And it's to, causing problems amongst local people there. Indeed. So it, it, it's not an easy inheritance he's got. Certainly dealing with President Trump um, is going to be a big challenge because um, the Mexican economy is so dependent on the US economy that there's a limit to how far he can, he can distance himself from it. Um, and yet, and yet it cannot be easy dealing with the Donald. Mm. And so he's got his work cut out. I mean, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, we already have a new NAFTA agreement in place prompted by uh, Mr. Trump's uh, promises. Uh, that might give some respite to mm. that side of uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador's that was uh, negotiated by his predecessor. Exactly. Uh, but uh, you're right in pointing out that uh, the uh, migration uh, crisis, which has to do precisely with U.S. intervention in El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras, is a very difficult uh, one to deal with. Uh, and also, let us not forget the uh, uh, intertwinement between uh, organized crime, drug trafficking and formal uh, uh, finance. Here, there's another side of globalization that it uh, it would be incredibly difficult for anyone to to deal with. Now he's going he's going to uh, try and uh, uh, you know legalize uh, marijuana, for instance. That that is a very it's a very small step, uh, but a step in the right sure. direction. And I, I just want to comment as a as somebody who's been very involved in dealing with the issue of journalistic safety. Mexico is the most dangerous place in the mm. world for journalists. Mm. I'm really pleased he's made a priority of reinvestigating the murder of the 24th students who and 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 from that the same factors have fueled the violence against journalists mm. and i do hope i can express no more that the issue of journalists being killed for doing their job in mexico by the cartels usually it's not political killings mm. in, in in the narrow sense of the word i do hope that we see some progress there 
OK, let's move on now to our final topic and the Garrick, one oh, of the London's... important news of the day. The important last, news of the day, know, yes, yes, yes. From Mexico to the Garrick, which is one of London's last remaining male-only clubs, could be about to make history. Hold your breath. Club members, who include the actors Damien Lewis and Hugh Bonneville, are considering a New Year vote on allowing women to join having kept them out successfully for 187 years. Now, the last time the issue was put to the vote was in 2015, when only 50.5% of members supported it. Look, I'm just going to be slightly controversial here, going against the sisterhood. Why shouldn't men have an exclusive space which they can call their own, or they can chinwag in peace? (laughs) I think think the supporters of the ban on women will call upon you as a a speaker. Um, (laughs) The, the, the difference is this. It's like the difference between um, black people being able to have their own self-organisation um, and white people because it's all about power and the power is still Clearly with skewed. the men. And yeah. therefore their ability to keep out um, women is important. But there's another well, equally serious point. There is a lot of there is a lot of important wheeling and dealing done in the Garrick. Mm. Senior government ministers, media and, people, and that's true of quite a few clubs, and that's isn't ex- it? And women are excluded yes. from that. Yeah. Yes. And so I think the harsh realities of life mean that there is an overwhelming case. But I have to say, as opposed to Brexit, where I won't make any predictions, I fear this vote might be lost. Oh dear, and, and, yeah. and it's a very valid point that he makes, isn't it, Oscar? Because look, at the end of the day, this is a club which has very strong links with the theatre. It was founded by the actor David Garrick. Women are actresses, they are producers, they are directors, they are writers, they are an integral part of that theatrical tradition. And it seems rather odd that a lovey's club is is really there for, for male lovies. It doesn't include the women. It just seems a bit <laughs> odd, really. <laughs> it's not only odd, but for all the reasons we've heard, it's just unacceptable. Yeah, uh, yes, it's a misnomer the, in the 21st totally. century. So that vote will, is going to be lost. So I'm, I'm off to mind here. Can we just here. explain? It's got to be a two-thirds but I don't yeah. know. It's yeah. a two-thirds yeah. majority. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But on the one hand, I'm also queasy about you know men being given the possibility of uh, allowing women to come into, into, this, <laughs> into this club. You know, that kind of uh, gracious giving of freedom uh, not always works. On the other hand, it is totally unacceptable uh, that in the 21st century you have this sort of situation, but it is reflective of society at large. Yeah. Uh, women are still, uh, uh, you know, uh, more often than not uh, uh, considered outcasts and expelled from uh, I mean, I, the public arena. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who's a member of the Garrick, but I bet you that there are women in the kitchens. And cleaning the place as well. Cleaning the place and serving the drinks. I, mean. yeah. I, have, to, I, have, to, yeah. I have to say that um, the club of... I am not a member of a London club. Well, I am one called the Royal Society of Arts, which I think is acceptable. Hmm. But it is very useful to have a place in central London where you can meet people, where you can chat, where you can network, um, where you can sit down and do your emails. Um, there are advantages to it, um, which, you know, it's, it, it's, it's worth understanding why people join hmm. them. I'm also a member of the RSA, but, uh, you know, there are many women there and, uh, uh, you know, they lead in Scotland, for instance. I haven't noticed. I'm not a member of any club, but what I will say to women who may be offended by the Garrick is just probably the best thing to do is to actually set up your own equivalent to that, a female equivalent where the men are only allowed in on very special days. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Ivor Gaber and Oscar Guardiola Rivera, thank you for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Carlota Rebello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Martha and Gabriel Delisanti, and our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next at 1900 Hours. It's the Monocle Culture Show.